Sagatan katapasa taya. Savanaya katapasasu. Takaronta purisesu cha. Welcome to Con Larry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Hi there. So how are you guys doing? <sighs> doing okay. Hanging in there, you guys? I'm uh, crabby about the weather. Uh, today was glorious over here. It was like in the 40s or the 50s. It was really nice. It is not doing that here. It is snowing Uh-oh. again. And last again. year at this time... It was in the 80s. Neither of these is normal. Mm. But, but I will stop whining about the weather now. Oh, dear. Um, trying to find something really quick because I just thought I wanted to mention this. I uh, just found out about this recently. It was something that one of the linguistics professors uh, sent out. It, I guess it went out on Linguist List. Um, the, have you heard of these MOOCs? Mm-mm. The... Um, the massively or massive online courses or whatever. Oh, sure. So, a virtual linguistics campus is has started one, and uh, it's free. It's uh, phonetics, phonology, and transcription. It looks like a sort of a beginner level thing, but we may have some. That would be really useful for a lot of beginning conlangers who people yeah, are not yeah, sure yeah. about IPA and, and describing sounds and stuff and they want to aim for something different than their native language. That sounds great. It looks like it looks like your standard course. Um, they cover, you know, basics. Uh, uh, I looked at sort of the uh, the materials I have of like what the syllabus is and stuff and it's like they cover just sort of looks like basics of articulatory phonetics and then uh, a little of the basic phonology, and then use English as an example to uh, lead people through it. Nice. So good, useful for some beginners. You know, you might want to register for that. It's one of these things you work at your own pace, and they, they have online discussions where students can help each other out and stuff. Cool. So uh, anyway, uh, with that little bit out of the way, I just wanted to throw a shout out to that. I thought. Um, Perhaps we have a featured language today. It is a natural language, and one that has been mentioned on the show many times before. So uh, you may some some of the material may be a little familiar, but you know uh, there's probably going to be some new stuff because this is something that William particularly knows quite a bit about. We're talking about ancient Greek. My first love. <laughs> I can almost hear the violins playing as you yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess the first thing I wanted to look at is why on earth would conlangers want to look at ancient Greek in particular? So I have a few points on that that, that <clears throat> I seem worthwhile. First of all, it is one of the longest, nearly continuously documented languages in the world, about 3,400 years. So it is a really excellent source of interesting historical changes and dialectology that follows from that sort of stuff. It's an interesting laboratory of language contact if you go in for that sort of thing. By comparison to the standard European language most of us know, it is stranger than most people suspect, in my opinion. Yeah, we've had... You've mentioned before on various shows some of the just off the wall as far as European languages are concerned. Right features that ancient Greek has. Um, And it is reasonably easy to find acceptable information online on the language. Some of it's, (coughs) excuse me, a little bit old. Um, In particular, almost everything said up until a few decades ago about the Greek discourse particles is complete crap, in my opinion, (laughs) or or nearly complete crap. I'm going to get hate mail from people who still think Deniston is a great book. Um, But apart from that, a lot of what you can find online is pretty good. And there are some newer sources available online as well, which can help you get a better picture of what the current state of our knowledge of the language is. Um, So that's that. That's why I think this language should be interesting to conlangers, apart from, you know, learning how to read Homer in the original language. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> is a yes. worthwhile goal in itself, in my opinion. Um, I will be pronouncing the language somewhat differently than a lot of people. So if you took Greek in high school or college, you probably learned what's called the Erasmian pronunciation. So, for example, you pronounce a theta like an interdental fricative, th. I will pronounce that as an aspirated T, ta. I use a reconstructed Ooh. pronunciation because uh, my big hang-up in ancient Greek is Greek verse, and Greek meter makes no sense at all unless you use a reconstructed pronunciation. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So you have to... So that's that's why you're using yes. that. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Shall we just jump into some basics of phonology? Yeah, sure. Um, it has long versus short vowels that matter. Um some of those long vowels have quality shifts, some don't. So the standard uh, long version... So yeah. <laughs> um, so an ah is either long or short and has no quality difference. There's this very, very funky thing that happens in um, classical Greek that drives people bonkers. And that is the short vowels of your mid-vowels, of your A sound and your O sound. The short ones are tense and the long ones are lax. Ooh. Oh, okay. Which is kind of opposite of how most people expect that to be. So I'm using tense and lax. I apologize. The short ones are higher than the long ones, which are lower. So you have a is short and a is the long one. O is short. A is the long one. Now, is this the, for, for the reconstructed pronunciation or all across the board? Uh, that's how they were pronounced in the ancient as as far as we understand it. So that's how I'm going to pronounce it using the reconstructed. Um, most people who follow the Erasmian pronunciation do exactly the opposite, which causes some confusion. Uh, yeah. It, it may be useful to, for people to, to sort of know that anything that we know about ancient Greek is a reconstruction and particularly the pronunciation we can't necessarily know for certain but right we have a pretty good idea from we have a pretty good idea from lots of different sources and unfortunately this can be a point of political contention um especially if you went to school in greece under the generals so up until the 70s um there is a strongly held belief basically that aristotle pronounced greek identically to modern greek (laughs) Huh. Which is kind of ridiculous. Kind of insane. But you'll get hate mail for saying that it's insane. So, um, modern Greeks, obviously, for the most part, modern Greeks just pronounce ancient Greek as the modern language because there's a lot of similarities in terms of vocabulary that keeps getting sort of re-grabbed and drug into the modern language. And that's fine, but it sometimes irritates them to hear the uh, reconstructed pronunciation. And some go so far as to say that, you know, Aristotle talked like them. Um, sorry, I know, uh, I don't want to keep interjecting, but quick question. Are ancient Greek and modern Greek as far apart or similarly distant as, as old English and present day English, or are they mutually intelligible? They are not mutually intelligible. A modern Greek cannot read ancient Greek without a good deal of schooling. Okay. Hmm. That's, that's useful to know. Yeah. Um, those who have had schooling forget how hard it was to go and sometimes think that, that they're very similar, but they're really not. <laughs> a lot has, <laughs> a lot happens in 3,000 years. No, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would even, um, you know, you would probably know better than this, but I might even suspect it would be more different than, uh, say, Anglo Saxon to English because um, that's possibly not as much time distance to back to Anglo-Saxon. Right, but Greek has always been very conservative in multiple mm-hmm. ways. There's always been a diaglossic situation where ancient Greek is constantly surrounding them, um, especially mm-hmm. if you're going to church, you're going to hear something quite like Koine Greek. Any educated behavior was happening in ancient Greek, and it wasn't until the 80s that Actually, spoken modern Greek became the standard for use in newspapers and so forth. Really? Yeah. So they were like, up until the 80s, they were still using some some bastardized form of... Of... Yeah, some highly classicizing <laughs> wow. thing that no one actually spoke. <laughs> yeah. But because that was used so much, bits of it did filter into the the modern uh, the um, the key, which is what you call a modern language. Uh, so there's constantly Greek modern Greek is constantly being renewed and revitalized and made strange by borrowing stuff from the old language at various points. Okay, so that puts a hitch on. You'd think after three thousand four hundred years, a whole lot would have changed, um, but it's masked a little bit by first of all this etymological spelling system. 
Um, mm-hmm. A huge number of diphthongs and vowel sounds that are now pronounced identically in modern Greek, namely E, um, still retain their old spellings. Huh. Oh, hmm. <laughs> so how 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 crazy is the spelling system? Is it worse than English? I think so. <laughs> if you grew up speaking modern Greek and then you have to learn to spell it, it must be utterly maddening. So I pronounce the word, one of the words that Greek has for soul, psyche, in modern Greek is psyche. <laughs> Bless you. Yeah. Um, it is a word you'll hear often in Greek love songs, psyche, psyche. Anyway, um, right. So that's another interesting thing about Greek is it's very complicated. And up until the 80s, it was assumed that if you wanted to use modern Greek, you were a, a dirty communist. And if you wanted to use classical Greek, you were some lunatic fascist. So... <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, it's a complicated situation, a language situation, even in, in modern Greek to this day. Although I think it's mostly calmed down. I, I can already be in my mind drawing parallels to uh, another language we mention a lot. But. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, the consonant system um, is sort of interesting in that it has voiceless unaspirated, voiceless aspirated, and voiced for stops. Mm-hmm. And then it has a few, you know, resonance and, and, uh, one or two syllables or, um, affricates rather, fricatives rather, uh, one affricate. And that's about it. It's not a super complicated inventory, um, except for this voiceless, unaspirated, aspirated voice to distinction, which is a little bit different. Um, I think it also shows up in Armenian. Um, uh, but that's it in terms of, uh, that sort of distinction in the European languages outside of India. Um, it has extremely complex syllables, as you expect of an Indo-European language, but a highly restricted set of word-final consonants, basically N and R. Hmm. Mm-hmm. A few prepositions break that rule, but that's because they're counted as part of the following word. Um, so that's it for the phonology. That doesn't excite me as much, so I'm going to talk about other things mostly. Um, in terms of the grammar, um, <laughs> it has a mass of suppletion and irregularity. It really is a remarkably irregular language. Um, having studied it for many years, I sometimes forget how hard it was to learn all of this weirdness. But there's a lot, there's a lot of it going on. Um, who was it? George or Mike? Who just before we started the show freaked out about the definite articles? Uh, yeah, so I, I looked at the definite articles and looking at how many forms there are. It's not. It's. It, I mean, it's not a huge deal, but it is a lot of forms because. So you distinguish masculine, feminine, and neuter. Yep. I haven't yet uh, done this. Uh, it's in the ancient Greek grammar Wikipedia page, the tables that's, it's in the links, but so you have masculine, feminine, neuter, also corresponding with singular, dual, and plural number. Uh-huh. And you also have nominative, genitive, dative, accusative. Yes. So other people can calculate how many forms of the definite, of the, uh, of the article there are, but uh, there's quite a few. 36. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. And um, Sorry. But that, I, but, that, but that just corresponds to the declension of nouns and adjectives. Like an yeah. adjective is going to have um, the same number of forms. It's a- actually adjectives are going to have one additional column for the vocative. Oh, okay. Which I'm will usually that. only present a distinction in the masculine singular. Yeah, it looks like nouns also have a vocative. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, have vocative marking, of, of course. Yes. Um, no. And you can see that some of the forms are actually identical, too, which is obvious that's going to happen. Uh, is it? I know uh, Russian's the only other case language that I've studied, um, but do certain prepositions also dance around with these different cases running oh, around oh, all sorts of... Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> running around all promiscuous and going with whatever case they feel like it suits them at the moment. You have some that only occur with one case, but others will occur with up to three cases. Okay. With different, you know, shades of meaning. As a result, um, typically, the accusative indicates motion, dative indicates location, and the genitive um, motion from... Do do proper oh, nouns gain case? Because that's yes, that's it, yeah. That that's one of those things that some languages personal names get case. Some some of them they don't. Oh yes, they do in Greek. Okay, and some of the most common names have weird declensions. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> you have irregular declensions for a personal name? Yeah. 
<laughs> Socrates is a nuisance in more ways than one. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. And some, uh, some feminine names like Sappho, the poet, those, there are nouns that end in Omega are very unusual, but we have a bunch of nouns that do, uh, names that do. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've learned that about the noun system. And there are a bunch of different declensions. Um, it's the verbal system where Greek morphology really goes completely bonkers. <laughs> it is very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, talking a little bit about the stems. So you have an imperfective stem, which might be the, the basic stem. If it's not the basic stem, if it's a derived stem, then you have multiple ways of forming the imperfective stem. So okay. Suffixes, infixes, ablaut, or pretty much any combination of that. Um, although I don't think you ever get any infix plus ablaut combos. And there's a small class of very common verbs that are reduplicated in the imperfective. Oh. But a different kind of reduplication than we'll see in other parts of the verb. Just to keep it interesting. In case you're getting bored. Right. The perfective stem is either the most primitive stem, or it is created with either a suffix or a small number of ones that take reduplication. Mm-hmm. And the perfect stem is reduplicated. Um, if any of these verbs start with vowels and you try to reduplicate them, then all sorts of hinkiness can happen. Sometimes mm-hmm. the vowels get longer, sometimes other things happen. Um, and the future stem it seems to be a, a newcomer to the system. It's very easy. It's just a suffix. So mm-hmm. you're talking about stems with all these. Do they have each different paradigms for the conjugations? Or is it um, like there's uh, agglutinative kind of? They have different stems. Get it is after- not agglutinative. Yeah, I didn't think so. I think it was very, very much inflected. It is very, and yeah, it's definitely inflected. Um, there are commonalities, there are patterns. Your second person singular is usually going to have a sigma in it somewhere in the ending. Um, the only weirdness is that sometimes, um, if the declensional form has a vowel following it, the sigma disappears. <laughs> um, and then vowel contraction happens. <laughs> oh gosh. Right. Um, so you can get entertainments there. In addition, so you've got active and medio-passive. Yes. You've got indicative, subjunctive, optative, and imperative moods. And um, you can just throw these all together. Needless hooray. to say, there are something on the order of 700 forms a, a verb can take. I think my eye just twitched <laughs> as my brain went into a black hole. What? So so you do have to... So, so there are quite a few that you have to deal with. You do. And there are patterns, to, like I said, to make it easy to learn these things if you're trying to learn them. Um, commonalities that will pop up from time to time. Now, you mentioned medio-passive. This the this article has middle voice and passive voice. Are they... Right. So that's not- a theoretical argument. Some people believe there is a true passive in classical Greek. I do not. Okay. Some an unbeliever, Charlie. Right. Right. So... so- um- are all those forms, I mean, that sounds like a lot of form, a plethora of forms. Mm-hmm. Um, but are they all pretty much used um, commonly? Like English, you have crazy forms like, you know, I. you could come up with forms that we don't even use, like talking about with a past and subjunctive and all that. But are all those actually used and no, fully no. functional? No. I mean, all of these forms do occur. Um, different kinds of futures are kind of rare in Homer and the perfect means something different in Homer than it means later. So they're not particularly common. And then they become much more common as the language evolves. Oh, okay. Um, I wouldn't expect them all to be equal. No, no, no. They're not all equally common. Um, Mostly you expect to see forms of the imperfective and forms of the perfective. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually the perfective meaning started taking over more and more territorially until it became, it sort of took over the jobs of the perfect as well. And then the perfect just disappeared. So modern Greek has more or less lost. Can we go over very quickly the difference between perfective and perfect? Because sometimes I kind of forget what perfect actually does. And I'm sure some of our audience does. Cause I know right. what so perfect in is. Homer, the perfect verb refers to a state. Okay. And statives, often come to mean the perfect. And the perfect refers to an action that happened in the past that has effects still existing in the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I have eaten for in English. For exactly. Example. Whereas the yeah. perfective simply presents a snapshot picture of something that happened. I ate. Right. So that's the decision. Oh, so it's a completed action in the past? No. Okay. Um, don't don't perf- call yep. it completed. It can mean completed, but that is not its core sense. The, the main thing of, of 
uh, a perfective is that you are looking at the action as a single event. Right. Whereas an imperfective, you look at the progress of it. Right. Typically, okay, um, so. typically in Greek narrative, background information is given in the imperfective, and then the the events you care about are in the perfective. So is the preterite a, t- a type of perfective? I, I have no idea because what people call mm-hmm. the preterite differs yeah. from language to language. It's almost a um, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking um, of Spanish, uh, Spanish perfective. Spanish, perf- Spanish preterite is a like a past perfective is what I would characterize it as. But um, it depends on what language, yeah, yeah what yeah. what it, what that actually label actually applies to. So, but the the point I was I was ask, getting to clarify is that perfect is different from perfective in that perfect oh, yes. is an event in the past that has continuing consequences for the present. Correct. Okay. I had a That's, quick question also. Okay. Um, yeah. Getting away from Spanish and back into Greek, ancient Greek. Um, so those forms, are they, are any of them paraphrastic or are they all inflected? Like, um, just on the one word? There are a few oddball, uh, paraphrastic, paraphrastics in different moods when you get out into weird kinds of perfects. I see perfect, middle, subjunctive, and optative have, right, right. to have yep. an extra word. Right. So they have a form of the verb to be in the correct mood and then a participle. That's pretty, yeah. you know, using the verb to be is pretty common. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that form of the verb to be follows the uh, perfect or follows no, the – No, it's, it's just presented that way in the tables. Greek syntax is radically non-configurational. Oh, of so course it, it could is. come anywhere. <laughs> you could come in a totally different part of the sentence. <laughs> right. It has to be in the same clause, but yes, it could be anywhere. Of course. <laughs> it's like an Easter egg. Find the, find the paraphrastic form. Right. Um, so people who love morphology and tables should really spend some time looking at Greek verbs. <laughs> Uh, it, they are they are quite uh, crazy. We should mention that for the uh, resources that uh, we are uh, giving, it may be useful for you to sort of go over the Greek alphabet if you're yes. not familiar with it. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's, it's an not, easy alphabet to learn. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not going to be terribly difficult to learn. But you know, looking at these, the fact that I am not totally familiar with the Greek alphabet means that I'm a little bit lost looking at the charts just at a glance. <laughs> the only thing that loses me is that there are a lot of like uh, digraphs for especially the vowels and some of the consonant sounds, so that's just what throws me a little bit for a loop. What do you mean? Well, no, like um, you'll have, like you were saying earlier, there are a lot of, uh, for the sound of E, you might have a few different spellings where it's like oh, it's either oh, one only, letter. Only in modern Greek. In ancient Greek, they all had distinct pronunciations. Oh. And yeah. like uh, I think the the Greek, at least, that we're presenting, the ancient Greek we're presenting, probably uh, comes very soon after the Greek alphabet was invented. So it's yes. probably going to have... Nearly phonemic. Yeah, yeah, be nearly phonemic. Whereas uh, if you were, if you do do modern Greek, then it's, it's a, that phonemicity is going to go away. Yeah. Yes, it goes away in a big poof that go with <laughs> Um One thing I want to say is the, the normal verb that you're given the full Greek verb paradigm for, lio, which means to loose, like let something go, um, makes everything look tidy, but it's not really tidy. Different verbs have different present systems, so there is an entirely separate um, conjugation for a small set of very commonly occurring presents. <laughs> The reduplicating presents have different endings. Um, you have I, not two, but three separate kinds of perfectives. Mm-hmm. Um, one, which just desperately confusingly looks like imperfectives in other kinds of stems. Mm-hmm. So you get some verbs that look like, oh, I learned that in lesson five. That is a past imperfective. No, that's an perfective. <laughs> <laughs> and we're so you have to pay attention to the stem. And there are at least two kinds of perfect as well. Of course. That's, that's, that's wonderful to, I think that's, this is a wonderful thing, uh, to have so much irregularity and have conlangers look at it because, you know, as conlangers, we often tend to not have a really, a realistic amount of irregularity in the languages we make. So it's, it's useful to actually look at something like this and see like, Oh, you can have a language that totally doesn't make sense. Right. 
not not really, but not that's a little extreme to say, but you get the point. Um, and then the- so wait a minute. So I'm just looking at so there there's lots there's sorry something caught my eye. This is actually back in like nouns, but it looks like Zeus has alternation between the Z the 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 Z sound and a a uh, delta. Yes, the, yes. The declension of Zeus is very weird. And, and it's quite different in different dialects. Many vowel changes, too. Many vowel changes, because, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. If you had a um, glide, like a wa sound or a ya sound, those evaporated by the time historical Greek appears. Um, mm-hmm. But they still existed, and so all sorts of madness happens when they go away. <laughs> in Homer, you have at least two separate patterns of declension of the name Zeus. Some which keep the, Z, the zeta, and some which keep the delta. Hmm. Jeez. Okay. Um, with the orthography, I did find a link to that, and I put it down below. I'll ask questions on that later. Okay. <laughs> One last thing I wanted to say that was interesting about the verbs, and I, I'm sure I've mentioned this before in other episodes, is verb telicity interacts with aspect in interesting and nifty ways, um, particularly in the perfective and imperfective system distinction. Um, so telicity is what you might call lexical aspect. It's the intrinsic internal uh, state, no, intrinsic internal event structure of a verb. Sneeze is not an event that can have much duration. <laughs> you hope. Sleep is. So, for example, in ancient Greek, the verb for to be sick, if used in the perfective, can also mean to get sick. Ooh. So an, an atelic verb with the perfective meaning, can have uh, an inchoative sense. It has a sense of starting something, to get sick, um, to die versus to be dead, that sort of stuff. Whereas an atelic verb, no, let me say that again, atelic verb, something with uh, a bounded duration, when used in the imperfective, has can have the sense of to try to do something. Oh. Oh, okay. Right, he tried to hit the enemy. He tried yeah. to sneeze. Right. That that makes sense to me. I think other languages do that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's yeah. just to Greek, but it's an interesting little thing. All right. Is there anything else people wanted to ask about the verbs? Oh, I'm uh, sure think of things, but uh, I think that we get, got a good smorgasbord of things there, and we have the, the resources. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another sort of interesting, notable feature of ancient Greek is it has giant piles of discourse particles, many of them. And they like to dance together in not necessarily intuitive ways. So you get a certain combinations of particles, um, have meanings that are not obviously describable by just knowing the meanings of the two component parts, or the three component parts for that matter. Um, mm-hmm. If you do a Google search on ancient Greek particles, you'll find lots of pages of people trying desperately to help you understand what the hell's going on. <laughs> they will use words like emphatic to apply to multiple discourse particles, which will not help you much, which tells you that they're working off of old information. Yes. Well, I can't help you with that. Unfortunately, I I went looking for some, a lot of the really good information, the sort of modern linguistic approaches to the Greek particles are still hidden behind paywalls, unfortunately in journal articles. Oh, you know, the show would benefit very much from some open access journals. It would, it would. (laughs) Lots of lots of things would would benefit from open access linguistics journals. Yeah, um, there are several literary dialects in ancient Greek based on local dialects. So when people talk about ancient Greek, they don't actually mean one thing. They mean mm-hmm. a bunch of things, right? The Greek of Homer is different from the Greek of Aristotle and Plato. Is different from the Greek of the Bible. Is different from the Greek of very different from the Greek of Sappho, um, mm-hmm. which most even if you could spend years and years learning to read Homer. And, you know, Plato and Aristophanes. And then you would see Sappho and you'd have no idea what was going on. So is that more of a geographical um, variance or is that more yes. of a time-based difference or both? Ge- both, but mostly geographic in this case. So looking uh, at a flash photo of the Greek of year X, and if you looked around, you know, the the uh, idio, idio, what is it, idiolect? No, the area that spoke Greek, the uh-huh. Greek Greekophones. Um, how much is that the difference you're talking about? Like from northern Greece to southern Greece, there's a vast difference. Um, the split doesn't go neatly north south, but yes, you have a bunch of um, 
Aeolic dialects spoken in um, the the coast of the Levant, um, mm-hmm. so the coast of the Near East, right? Sappho was living basically in the Near East, um, so for that matter, was Homer. Um, north of where Sappho is is a big Ionic-speaking area, which is very close to the language spoken in Athens. The people in Sparta and in the Peloponnese spoke another dialect called... Um, Lack of, I don't even say that. Um, we'll just say they spoke a different dialect. Um, <laughs> I never, sometimes I know these words really well, but I don't know how to say them in English. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, I think I found it. Is that a like Attic, Thessalian, Aeolic, Ionic, Doric? Right. All Arcadian. of that stuff. Yeah. Doric is the simpler name for all of those sort of West Greek dialects with, wow. with the, and because early Greece itself, has coastline and rocks. It's very hard to do agriculture there. You can. There are places where there's good agricultural space, but not many. So the Greeks were sending out colonies a lot very early, which is why you get these weird pockets of other dialects popping up in different places. So in Sicily, mostly Doric dialects were spoken because that's where most of the settlers came from, Doric-speaking areas. Uh, Same with the Isle of Rhodes. Um, But then some other islands spoke languages very similar to what was spoken in Athens. Um, and that's just a normal thing. In the smack, in in the middle of Crete was a language very close to a language spoken way up north. Um, no one's quite sure how that happened. <laughs> and this uh, is all in the ancient world. By the time Greece really enters the main, the, sort of the international stage and the Athenians assert their dominance, the Athenian koine, so a slightly simplified version of Attic Greek, is used everywhere and eventually becomes what we call koine, which is used throughout the Middle East as a trade language, um, and eventually, you know, is a language heard everywhere from France to almost northern India. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much obliterated all of the local dialects. There are little traces, like there's um, something called Sakonian, which is a kind of a little last vestige um, in Western Greece. Um, mm. But that's about it. Uh, mostly the, those were all flattened by the time Alexander the Great did his thing. Oh, yay. I just yeah, found a link for the map, so yes. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, we'll link that map in the show notes. It's a, it's a useful thing to have. Jeez, uh, can you hear that car? I can. Yes, I can. Uh, well, anyway, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to mute myself in a se- for a second. Okay. Yeah, I just tried to find a map that showed a lot of the area because I don't know where some – my geography is not too good of that area. Right. So notice that smack in the middle of Arcadia, which is north <laughs> of where um, Sparta is, is that Sparta. like – Sparta. Yeah, Sparta. Is also the dialect spoken way off in Cyprus. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. So that's Between Olympia so that's, and Argos, right? Yes. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and then so you see, what? then you see Ionic, which is you know, that bit of purple around the coast, and then you see um, that it is both north and south of the Aeolic-speaking area. Okay. What time period would this this? Um, I would say this this maps well onto the beginning of the classical period. Okay. Before the um, Athenians started being pushy everywhere. Okay. I just Googled Greek dialects, and you can find a whole mess of those maps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now yeah, I'm, I'm for, sure you could find them for different periods and such, too. To, but just if, for a matter of a – I'm sorry, quick, quick, quick question. Um, in terms of scale, that area, is that as large as, say, you know, a state of the U.S., or is that a matter – like, um, there's not really a scale on there. There isn't a scale, and I'm not – because there's large bodies of water in the middle, I would say it's larger than a single state, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know if these were all very closely intertwined, these different dialects, or if they were basically Although, vast. Well, the a uh, useful thing to draw from this, though, might be sort of realistically, I think if you compared this to a physical map, you could probably draw some of these um, dialect borders from, like, um, rivers and mountains and such. Right. To uh, be, And uh, certainly, you know, you have islands do whatever... Their own kind of thing. Right. I mean, um, in general, the colonies, when possible, kept reasonably close ties with their mother city, mm-hmm. the metropolis. Um, but especially if you were on the, in the Levant, um, you were likely mm-hmm. to be conquered by the Persians. <laughs> but the, that Cyprus is really weird because the, the Arcadia dialect otherwise is like landlocked. 
Right. It is thought that it is one of the earliest versions of Greek to intrude into Greece, and that it mm-hmm. might be the dialect that our Homeric heroes probably spoke, something quite like those dialects. Hmm. Possible. Okay. But yeah, but who knows? <laughs> All right. So if you take the effort to learn some Greek enough to be able to read a little bit of it, and then start looking at the Greek dialects, you can get some really great ideas about things you can do um, in terms of conlanging dialectology, I think. Mm-hmm. I just um, I just Googled one other thing. I was looking at in terms of square miles. Greece is between the size of Louisiana and Mississippi in terms of square miles. Right. So, although there's there's plenty of like water in there too. And so. Yes, plenty of water, but just for in terms of how square mileage goes and. Did you say m- oh mountains? Okay, yes, mountains. I thought you said muffins for a second. I'm like, <laughs> yes, lots of muffins, ginormous Greeks? muffins. No, Greeks, uh, Greeks don't Greeks do muffins. I don't think they do lukumades, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, yeah, mm, uh, lukumades. Okay, actually, I don't know what those are. Sounds good. Anyway. No clue what it is. But it sounds. Just, you know, it's deep fried dough with honey and cinnamon. Oh, that's Ooh. nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so. Another relevant feature of classical Greek is that it is radically non-configurational. Mm-hmm. The word order is unlike anything you have ever seen before, I promise you. Now, one thing I want to ask you about, um, the non-configurationality of ancient Greek. You've mentioned, you mentioned this on way back episode 11, I think. Mm-hmm. But one thing I do want to ask is about, um, are there, is it, more visible in poetry than in prose? Uh, no. Do you still see the... Okay. You still see it quite strongly in prose. Okay. You Now, yes, the poets get their hands on it and they go completely bonkers. Like a poet like Pindar, <laughs> you uh, may have one word agreeing with another word seven words away. Mm-hmm. But that, that sort of stretch does not happen so much in prose. But various kinds of dislocations and fracturing by... Say English standards are happening in prose regularly. Okay, even very boring prose. Yeah, I was just saying because word order tends to shift a little bit more in poetry, sort of cross linguistically. Right, and that's true in Greece, and that's true in Greek. But even Greek prose does this quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, participles are used with wild abandon in literary registers. What does that mean? So participles are just. Adjectives that are acting like verbs. Walking in the dark, I tripped over my cat. So walking in the dark allows me to add a clause into the sentence by taking an adjective that acts verb-like, walking in the dark, that agrees with the subject. Yeah. Greek loves participles. If you see a piece of Greek that does not have a participle, it is not real Greek. (laughs) (laughs) Fall for it. Um, It is... They're used insanely commonly in literary registers, but they're very common, even less exalted prose. Even in like Koine Greek, which is closely approximates how people spoke, they're used a lot. Some verbs regularly require them as complements. Um, they exist in all of the aspects and most of the tenses. Mm. And they do all sorts of syntax things in addition to just being ways to make your sentences longer without adding subclauses. That's an interesting thing, putting aspect and tense on a participle. Uh-huh. I guess we can do that. We could say, having walked in the house. Right. English sort of has them. Sort of. um, But only because we have these paraphrastic aspects. Right, they're paraphrastic, yes. So Mm. that just adds the complexity of the Greek verb as you have many kinds of participles. Yeah. Um, uh, So one interesting thing, for example, and I gave a quote from Homer, but I don't think that matters. um, A future participle could indicate purpose. Mm Mm-hmm. So he went to the swift ships of the Greeks in order to free his daughter. Okay. And the in order to free part is just a future participle agreeing with the subject. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Right. That's a, that's an interesting sort of extension, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, um, one of those grammar is born hungry things. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> uh, one thing I wanted to mention is sort of a minor syntactic oddity is Greek does have a radically non-configurational syntax, but it's still within the noun phrase is kind of uptight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does a really int- post. I mean, uh, post Homeric Greek does a really interesting thing with its article. So Homer does not have a definite article. It has a thing that looks like the definite article, but really it's a demonstrative pronoun. And then by the time we get to classical Greek, that has become the article. Yeah, we should actually going coming right back to the the non configurationality. We should probably since it's been such a long time since we had an episode. 
you can go back to episode 11 if you want to learn more. But the basic thing is a non-configurational language has more freedom with word order and can often take phrases apart. Yes. Um, and, you know, put the, put them in, into, uh, into different orders, spread them throughout the sentence. And radically non-configurational languages, just like, I don't know, what would be really the difference? Non-configurational is mainly just the, the word order shifts a bit, right. but radically non-configurational, you are taking apart phrases. Yes. Um, and, and the point is then that word order is used to indicate something other than case roles. Right. It can, it can be used for discourse purposes. It can be used for, uh, animacy. It can be used for a whole lot of other right. things. Right. In the case of but, ancient Greek, um, yeah. it is used for discourse management. Yeah. Um, what's and new, we, what's old, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And again, we did a whole episode on that, but I just wanted to sort of define it for people who are new to the show. Right. So initiate, you can fracture a non phrase and send different parts to different ends of the sentence. Um, but more commonly, the non-phrase will stick together, unless it's mm-hmm. really huge. And there's this really fun thing that it does, and it has this notion that is drilled into all of our heads as little students of Greek, of attributive position and predicative position. Mm-hmm. Attributive position is anything that follows the definite article. Okay. So, the dog, the big dog. But you don't say the dog in the stairway in Greek. You say the in the stairway dog. Oh, okay. Um, and this extends to all sorts of funny things. You do not say, well, you can say the dog of the man, but you are much more likely to say the of the man dog. Of the man dog yes. is a prepositional phrase? Nope, it is the genitive. Genitive? Okay, so it's you the can, genitive. So you can okay. get pileups of up to three definite articles. <laughs> Two what? is much more common. So you guys don't realize it. But at the top where I put William's notes in ancient Greek, the first two words are definite articles. Oh. The, oh, okay. The of the William notes. <laughs> what? <laughs> so you just get stacks of definite articles in the front of a complex noun phrase. Yes. Is basically what you're saying. Okay, it becomes that's... super crazy complicated when an attributive phrase involves a participle. Is about the only time you're going to get three of them, but two is, two is most common. <laughs> So are the articles, they're compulsory. You must put them, right? You, they're usually, I mean, they're not, I mean, they still have their normal discourse function. So sometimes you might not have a, an article, but pretty often you are. It's only, it's only a definite article, right? Yeah. Okay. By the way, just out of curiosity, uh, so the, the Greek reflex of William starts with a gamma. It's like, go, what is it? A Guglielmo. Which is the genitive. I took the ancient Latin version of the name and then Greekified it. Oh, okay. So I was thinking of like like parentheses where they always have a matchup, but I guess sometimes you might you might have a noun without the article. Would right. you ever have the article by itself? All by itself? Well, no. like I don't know if they have no. um no. if they would stand in as like a No. I don't know. That sounds really strange, but no. but you in, in, in Homer, nouns. what we think of as the article in later Greek can be used as just a normal pronoun, like I see him. Yeah. Looks yeah. like I see the. Like Spanish has a lot. Or, uh, By the way, I, I, I wanted to mention stuff because I saw a chart of pronouns. Is there, there is gender distinction in third person pronouns or is oh, there yes. not? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I w- it wasn't exactly clear from that chart. At, There's at, an archaic third person pronoun that does not make that distinction. And instead, as usual, a, a demonstrative got hijacked to serve that function. <laughs> okay. Right. So that's what happened. Okay. That sandwiching thing, that stick, that um, imposition is really interesting. Yeah. Good for con- idea for conlangers. Yeah. Well, lots of good ideas for conlangers. Fantastic it's ideas. <clears throat> very different language. Yeah. Um, anything else about that before I move on to just a few little random lexical tidbits that I thought were cute? Uh, sure. Okay. The cuteness. Um, so Greek has some really interesting words. <laughs> okay. Um, go on. Let's start with the first. Well, I'm actually go to the bottom of the list. Xenos. Xenos. Okay. As in the word xenophobia. Hmm. Uh huh. That represents a really interesting thing, us, because in English we have guest and we have host. Right. In Greek, you have a relationship, and two people in a guest-host relationship are both xenos, who are partaking of xenia. 
I mentioned so, this in my in a short recently. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's probably why it was on my brain. Yeah. So it's like a relationship kind of like siblings are the brother and sister are siblings of each right, other. Right. So so explain to us a little bit about what uh, what Xenia is from from what I understand it's just it's it's hospitality but you right. know it's there's, there's specific there's, cultural uh, there are all sorts of stuff and it differs from time to time it means something different to Homer's heroes than it means to uh, an aristocratic Athenian. Uh-huh. I mean to Homer's heroes it represented a long cycle of Mutual obligation for aristocrats. Like face? Kind mm-hmm. of like face. I mean, there's one scene in, you know, some Homeric battle where two guys meet and they have a long conversation before they start bashing each other over the head, which is typical in Homer. And they realize <laughs> that several generations back, their fathers met and were friendly to each other. So uh-huh. on the battlefield, they exchange armor and then proceed to slaughter each other. <laughs> well, then. Right. That's interesting. But, the, I mean, there were obligations that needed to be met. Uh, and they cross, you know, through generations. And there's this thing throughout many cultures where you have to be nice to guests, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that hospitality isn't really an alien thing to us, even. Right, but right. it's, uh, different cultures express it in different right. ways. I just, I just, you know, there's one of the things that gets beaten to our head is how Xenos is, is, Encompasses both participants in that relationship. There's not a necessarily strong distinction between distinction between guest and host. That that makes a lot of sense, though, to yeah, have 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 one term for both. And from what I understand, like this, that goes back to Proto-Indo-European, yes, uh, I, which is the 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 root for both guest and host. Yeah. Uh, so it's probably just a a, a carryover of even older traditions. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then two other interesting words. The first one is lantana, which is really great. It means that, it basically means to escape notice. Interesting. Use it with the participle, and then it basically means something like sneak successfully. To escape notice. I like this. Like, I escaped noticed pilfering cookies. <laughs> okay. And then if you start adding uh, compounds with this verb and change the voice, it also um, has to do with um, to forget something. We haven't oh. talked a whole lot about derivation in ancient Greek. I've, I understand that it's very happy to compound. Oh, very, very happy to compound and derive and keep adding suffixes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know what and, all, all of the All of the old-fashioned grammars will have sections devoted just to the derivational systems. Interesting. Okay. So, so, you know, look at Smythe. Okay. Right. So the standard ancient Greek grammar, if you speak English, is still Smythe. S-M-Y-T-H. It is pronounced Smythe, not Smith. What is that from? <laughs> not Smythe. Smythe. Uh-huh. He's an American, <laughs> wrote at Harvard. It's still the standard, unfortunately. Okay. It's kind of old. Um, and then the next verb that I like is because, okay, it's tano, and it means to do something first. <laughs> first... That's yes. what ancient Greeks used to put on comment threads. That's right. On comment throws, first post would be, you know, you know, <laughs> whatever the word for post is going to be. And this is another one where you have to use the participle explaining what it is you're doing first. What are the, what's the initial sound of that word? Is it, it looks like phi and then theta. Yes, it is two aspirates in a row. Ptano. 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 Not o, all. Ptano. Ptano. There you go. Right. I sound you, like if, I'm spitting. Yes, if you learn Erasmian, then it's Thano. Sounds so boring. Yeah, it's boring. Thano. It's, boring. Thano. it's just wrong. Thano. Anyway, and all sorts of hanky-panky happens in aspect and your participle choice and all that, which I'm not going to go into here. But <laughs> I just like the idea that something that we would you know, use as an adverb, and frankly, very often Greek would use an adverb or even funny syntax using an adjective, um, still has available a verbal way to express this idea, which I always found interesting and neat. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. And I'm sure there are some other interesting words um, that that I'm missing, but those were just three that came to mind quickly as being sort of interesting ways of thinking about things. Um, I have a list of some things. We have the wiki page on lots of morphology, which is fun. Um, text Kit is a great website for people who teach themselves Greek and Latin, and they have a bunch of scanned textbooks, which are usually scanned at higher quality than Google ever managed. Uh huh. So you can find the standard grammars and textbooks if you really feel like getting into it. Um, and then I have a link to a very dense summary of Greek grammar, which 
In addition to just the grammar stuff, has some discussion of usage, which you might get ideas from. There's a big, long discussion of the different uses of Greek prepositions, which might give people ideas for their own languages if they're preposition-heavy. Mm-hmm. That's all great stuff. All right. So, uh, can Are we ready? Mike, do you have any burning questions or anything before we move to feedback? Well, no burning questions. Um, on my, I, p- I put a little list of things I found. Um, I already saw most of them. The only thing that seemed that I that is well, actually, okay. One small ember of a question. Those, yes, the Greek diacritics. What exactly? Maybe this will help demystify a little bit of it. But on that Wikipedia I linked, there's like all sorts of diacritics. Were those all used at the time of ancient Greek, and what do they all mean? No, they were not. They were inventions by Alexandrian librarians who were in the business of recording ancient literature. Okay. Um, They were very worried about people doing things wrong, um, because the language is changing pretty rapidly at that point, so they invented the accenting marks. No. If you look at any early inscriptions, there are no accent marks, there are no diacritics at all. Um, The diacritic system and the various breathing marks all came later. And, uh, okay. and, and were added to help people who were forgetting what the language used to sound like. <laughs> okay, so That's... which of those marks were used? Like, I see there are, there's stress marking. Nope. But, uh, no, there wasn't even that? Nope, that was not used. So, so none of these, none of these are actually... None of them were used. Yeah, it says... It's, um... it's interesting, then, because considering, you know, things like the diaresis was invented for ancient Greek, but... Um, it says the diacritics starting the whole Hellenistic period. Is that where is that in terms of what we were talking about? Hellenistic is post Alexander the Great. Ah, okay. So uh, this is this is not something that was developed in ancient Greek necessarily. What? Not not in the Greek that we were talking about earlier. No, I mean, and okay. even even so, it wasn't. I mean, even when it was invented, it was not used heavily until much later. Mm-hmm. I was just asking because okay. um, the in some of our notes and in, I saw on some of the uh, some of the Greek. All over there is like it looks like a curly diaresis over some letters, or like uh, like a diaresis over the uh, something. Like if we look at future participle can indicate purpose, for example, uh-huh. it's uh, there's two dots over the O, and then there's two over the N with a long with looks like an ang without the hook. Wait, where are you um, seeing two dots? Oh, that one of those yeah. is a breathing mark. One of those is the accent. Oh, uh, so the and breathing then, mark actually used to be a separate letter, but. Uh, <sighs> God help us. So the Athenians <laughs> one day decided that they were going to start using a different alphabet. <laughs> but that alphabet missed some sounds they still use, so they had to come up with a day to cope with that. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the one thing I wanted to, to say is um, you, the Wikipedia on, the, on ancient Greek um, phonology actually says that ancient Greek had a pitch accent system. Yes. Uh, you didn't mention that. Is that? Oh, that's so boring. I guess it didn't occur to me to mention. Yeah, it had a pitch accent system. Um, you had a low tone, high tone, and falling tone. Okay. And the falling tone could only happen on long vowels or diphthongs. All right. I mean, yeah, you can get into the the longer discussion. Of that I mean, it's there. It's not especially wild or interesting. Okay. I was I was just uh, wanting to mention it. Uh, just to, to clarify, you know, a typology right. bit. So any word in Greek that starts with a vowel will have a breathing mark, one which means that there's an H sound and one which means there isn't. Oh. <laughs> Why? Because uh, in Attic Greek, the H sound still existed, but it didn't anywhere else. But why would you need huh. two? One for one again. Who knows? You know, why? Uh, who knows? <laughs> uh, and okay. Then, well, well. So- Writing systems can get tricky. Yeah. That's, so that's um, over some vowels, I see there's also, it looks like almost like the diaresis of, that Hungarian has with two slash marks. Um, like over the, I think um, the last word has it over the second to last letter. And the, the second to last word has it over the second to first letter. What? I don't know. I don't, Look where I'm highlighting. I don't see where you're. That's just a diaresis. That's, that's that one, a falling okay. tone. That's a falling tone. And then this yeah. one. Those are those are those. I thought that was circumflex. Oh right. So that has a breathing mark with a circumflex mark on top of it. (laughs) Okay. Obviously, so I can see that clearer. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And the circumflex uh, we're talking about actually looks like a tilde. 
But anyway. right. in some fonts, it looks like a tilde, and in other fonts, it looks like a circumflex. Exactly. Yeah. But anyway, why don't we actually move on to feedback? <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's we why I look go into an endless diacritics. digression about diacritics and, and digression. But Which, that, that is the only burning question I had, and thank you for, for attending that burning question. Yeah. Oh, and I, I do have one not burning question, but how did you come to love ancient Greek, and what experience have you had with ancient Greek? Uh... I don't know why I do. I just do. It's awesome. Everyone who when studies ancient first, Greek should love it. When did you first set eyes on it? Was it love at first sight? Why did you choose ancient Greek? Oh, yeah. I saw it in high school and didn't get to study it until I got to college. And once I studied it in college, I basically kept up. Even when I left college for a while to flee Texas and, <laughs> and moved to Wisconsin and then finished school here in a completely different subject, not related to languages at all, I kept reading it. Um, and then I found this really great textbook for reading Homeric Greek by Clyde Farr uh-huh. that uh, takes you through the first book of the Iliad. And that really kept me into it. And I've stayed with it ever since. All right. And uh, so that's all for my questions. then. <laughs> all right. I think um, I think we're safe to move into our feedback on the show. Uh, that was that's. I hope that people are inspired to look in further into ancient Greek because as we've mentioned at the, at the, we mentioned right off the top, it's very heavily documented. So you will find lots of stuff. Yes. So, um, so we got an email from what's the name? Uh, Yuri. And this, this person, uh, I'm not going to read this entire email because it's rather long, but, uh, uh, the he says hi George and Co. It's a pity you can't keep up a, with a tight schedule for the podcast, but this happens. School is important. Uh, for short podcast subjects, you might want to do reviews of variability of certain grammatical structures in some language, or alternatively, go through the variety of uses of some simple grammatical forms, such as a case or a participle that can can have in a single language. As you've said over and over again, nothing in grammar is simple. It has a simple and well-defined function, and all, and the available constructions tend to be used for all kinds of different tasks. Hearing some case studies of this from different languages with good examples would be nice and instructive for conlangers of all stages. At all stages, that is a very good. Um, that is a very good idea. That might be something. Considering, like particularly my. My um, shorts, I tend to put like a hook at the beginning and and discuss things from there. That might be a good uh, a good thing to that would work nicely into my structure for them. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that is interesting because, I mean, taking an example or you know related examples of Greek and Latin do completely different things with the genitive case. Uh huh. They're both called the genitive. Well, I mean, they're called that because the Latins, you know, the Romans stole Greek terminology, but. Um, they're called the same thing, but they do quite different things. Mm-hmm. I was thinking also of like doing within a single language, like one, like I could look at Chinese and just do an episode on uh, the le. Oh my god! Because it's it might actually that might actually be something for a long. Episode yeah, so you could do an entire podcast on le. <laughs> But I mean, I could do a quick over episode fifty two of our discussion of love. Yes, but um, you know, you could you could do something like that in a single language and and pick on one particular grammatical form or particle or something. Yeah, no. Um, okay. It sounds like a good idea, uh, and it fits in with sort of my own ideas for how how shorts should go. And he gives us an example from Finnish, which we're not going to go over right now. Uh, I maybe could do we'll do a, a short bunch of short episodes just on ancient Greek. <laughs> yeah, just a whole bunch of like random discourse particles and stuff. Yeah, absolutely, because they're awfully, awfully interesting. Or or That's... different forms mm, that works. Different aspect forms and sure. such. Yeah. Okay. Um, that about wraps it up for this show. Uh, those emails come to conlanger at gmail.com. Uh, I will say, um, I do look at all the emails, but you know, you're a little bit more likely to be, get the whole thing read on the show if you're a little bit concise, more concise, because, uh, 
we're kind we kind of read them at the end here and we don't want always want to t- spend a whole lot of time on them. I do if I use one on the show, I do always put it in the show notes in full. So, uh people will read be able to read this one. Uh we also need those greetings for the top of the show in a conlang or natlang and uh there's information on the site to do that for you to uh do that and uh that's about it uh i'm just going to go to william and ask him what are your final words of wisdom learn greek you will love it (laughs) all right and how about mike all right i found this one online and uh it it works pretty well it's uh it's it's gonna get harder before it gets easier but it will get better you just gotta make it through the hard stuff first so uh with how this applies to conlangery and greek is when you look at things it might look like a whole bunch of strange markings and lines and doodles and things and your language may start out really tough but stick with it and get through the hard stuff and it'll get easier as you get better at it and um it's just a good words of wisdom for life so that's my words of wisdom all right then i'm going to say happy conlang thank you for listening to conlangery you can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com you can send questions comments or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.